DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, keep out. Work begins on Finland's border fence with Russia. Only joking? Meet the reporter receiving cryptic messages from Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. I think it was a very dark joke, but he suggested that, oh, I'm checking my garden to find the body of your colleague here, which I, I, it was vaguely threatening, but I think ultimately he was also trolling me there. And not so fast. Prague protesters demand a 30 kilometer an hour speed limit. Those stories and more coming up on the program. It's been an eventful few weeks for Finland. The month began with the Nordic country's official entry into the NATO alliance, followed swiftly by a closely fought general election, which saw the right come out on top. And now, this week, the start of a construction project so significant that DW's very own Brussels correspondent, Terry Schultz, flew out to see it. Designed to be three metres high, 200 kilometres long and topped with barbed wire, we are, of course, talking about Finland's new border fence with Russia. Finnish Defence Ministry official Juha Martelius says nothing will ever be the same in the Finnish-Russian relationship. One of the major feelings uh, when Russia attacked Ukraine from the Finnish people's point of view was a major disappointment. That is, why did you really have to do that? I mean, there was no reason for that. And after that, people realized this is year zero for us, for our new relationship with the Russians. So it doesn't matter what kind of end result take place in Ukraine, you know, we would have a total different relationship with the Russians than we had before. Now Finland's in NATO, something it may never have done without Russia's attack on Ukraine. But it's also seeking to defend itself in another way, by building a 200-kilometer or 125-mile fence along its eastern border. Not because anyone thinks that would prevent a military incursion, but because the Kremlin has other ways of trying to destabilize its neighbors, Martellius notes. We already knew that the, the red line for, for the Russians you know, was our accession to NATO, and of course we... We're waiting for you know, some kind of reaction. All the European Union and NATO countries that border Russia or Belarus have experienced what is often called weaponized migration, when Moscow or Minsk orchestrate illegal crossings by the hundreds or even thousands. Latvia, Lithuania and Poland experienced the highest number of attempted entries back in 2021. But Russia took busloads of people to Lapland crossings back in 2015 to try to get them into Finland, which is the last country sharing a border with Russia or Belarus to decide to build a fence. In Imatra, the city nearest to where the fence project is kicking off, Mayor Matthias Hilden says no one is enthusiastic about the project, but they're resigned to it. It's a little bit sad that we need it, but uh, it's good for us and show abroad also that, that we are still guarding our walls very well. In his office at Imatra City Hall, Hilden explains that a decade ago, no one thought twice about hearing Russian spoken in stores or spas, and Russian license-plated cars were everywhere. Russians were even buying up almost every second property in the area, Hilden says. Now we don't have any possibility for that anymore, and that's why we have thought everything differently and joined NATO. It's just so different world than what we were living one and a half years ago. 
Now hearing Russian around town would definitely cause a second suspicious glance, Hilden believes, and no one's counting on the return of friendly relations anytime soon. One longtime resident in Imatra, William Denisuk, says he knows people with an even stronger sense of foreboding that stretches all the way to scenarios of military invasions and occupation. It's clear people are nervous and just the uncertainty, I think, is what it is. And I see it, I, I mean, friends, you know, actually stop doing things or, you know, like that they were going to do repairs on their summer cottage. They say, I'm, I'm holding off because do you want to invest and put a lot of money into something and then, you know, within a year or so, you know, be that it's under somebody else's control or something. He mentioned the Donbass area of Ukraine, currently occupied by Russia, as an example of where the Kremlin used the high population of Russian-speaking residents as an excuse to invade. But another resident, Johanna Erola, feels the money the fence will cost should be spent elsewhere. She doesn't think it's any real protection. It's like imaginary safety. And uh, so I don't really think that it's, it's necessary. Fence wouldn't really matter if they would come with the tanks. Up in the woods, now being cleared to make way for the barrier to be built over the next several years, Colonel Mika Rytkinen, a commander in the Finnish Border Guard, emphasizes there are no indications Russia plans to launch this kind of hybrid attack on Finland in what he calls a very short, short time. But... We need this fence in order to be ready for cases, what we saw, for example, in Poland and, and in Lithuania, where... Uh, there, there were large-scale illegal immigration situation or, or that kind of that kind of cases. It, it takes time to build fence, so we have to be ready. Rytkinen adds that while a coordinated action against Finland seems unlikely at the moment, does anybody know what Russia will do in the future? He asks, and then he answers, "At least I don't." Terry Schultz, DW, Imatra, Finland. Have you ever had that experience where you read one gripping article and then you click on the author's byline and then surface 20 articles later having been pulled deeper and deeper into that writer's back catalogue? Well, that is exactly what happened to me this week when I got pulled into the world of Alison Quinn. Alison spent nearly a decade in Moscow and Kyiv reporting on corruption and Russia's opposition for the Moscow Times and Russia's war in eastern Ukraine for the Kyiv Post. She's now back home in the US where she works as a breaking news reporter for the Daily Beast. The article that initially drew me in was published last week and was based on research shared in Russian on the independent Russian telegram channel Astra. I'll let Alison explain the rest. So that report, the Astra report, was about men who were called up under Putin's quote-unquote partial mobilization order. And they were told that they were only going to be doing territorial defenses, which is something that, you know, it's less dangerous. They're not being sent on these suicide missions. But apparently they were tricked and then they were <laughs> shipped off to be handed over to Wagner and they put up resistance and they got thrown into this factory and all of those men disappeared. And I, it's still kind of unclear what is happening with them, but there have been other men called up under the mobilization who are reporting the same thing. Reports like these are very commonplace now. There was another one today about other troops that were forced into Wagner. 
And I have to admit that sometimes when I'm reading about these things, you know, I check every day and I monitor this closely. And sometimes I feel like I feel like I'm hallucinating, like it's so far-fetched and outrageous, and yet it's it's happening. Well, indeed. I mean, in the in the article that you wrote, you quoted one of the people quoted in the report who had been able to phone home and had said that he thought that their fate would be that uh, if they didn't sign up, they would be taken off, shot, and then dumped, their bodies dumped on the field of battle. This is obviously the subjective opinion of someone in the moment. We've no proof that that is actually what's happening. But the fact that a Russian conscript would think that is incredibly telling. Yeah, and there have definitely been many other reports along those same lines that quite a lot of the Russian troops who refuse to obey orders or if they're reluctant to go out on these missions that they're sent on, they are either thrown in basements, locked in basements, and just held there for weeks, or some of them are actually executed on the field. And one detail that I have read quite a bit about is that the commanders will take away their documents or change their documents and falsify them so there's no uh, official evidence of them being in that battalion or being in that unit. And then they would just be listed missing without a trace. That's horrific. And I mean, as, as you said, you know, coming by these stories, if, if you're a, a journalist who can speak Russian, it's possible, right? There are so many sources out there via telegram channels and et cetera, but that's not where your job ends, right? You've also got to fact check and you've also got to, if there's an accusation that's new that's been made, you know, journalistic practice would normally dictate that you would approach the person that the allegation uh, is being made against and ask them for a comment, you know, give them the right of reply. How does that work in a war context? So, yeah, the difficulty with that is that in, in so many of the reports that I've been doing, you know, for instance, Russian troops will complain of abuse by commanders, or they will say the commanders did this, and I don't know who the commander is. I have no way to get in contact with this commander. So that is very difficult, and obviously getting in touch with Russia's defense ministry, which I have tried before, um, they do not respond which, you know, I expected. The only one who responds is Yevgeny Prigozhin, the founder of Wagner. So one of, one of the most feared men in Russia. Yeah, and he, but strangely, he's usually very responsive. And sometimes I open the response from him and often it's very lewd. Um, I don't know if you saw that there was a story recently where I asked for comment from him about his commander who is widely reported to be sympathetic to the Nazis in the Third Reich. And I had to reach out to Prigozhin for comment, and his response was to write in detail about a tattoo that he suggested this commander had on his penis. He has a map of the Moscow underground on his penis. If you want to fact check that, you're going to have to suck it. I mean, that was... <laughs> and it's obviously trolling, and I realize that it's trolling. But there's a fine line between trolling and th threatening as well. And I, I read um, also that you'd had a really very threatening response by an audio message, I think, from him. That was actually on the day that the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gishkovich, was arrested. 
I mean, it was a very, I think it was a very dark joke, but he suggested that, um, oh, I'm checking my garden for, to make sure that, you know, to find the body of your colleague here, which I, I, it was vaguely threatening, but I think ultimately he was also trolling me there. I think that he gets a kick out of getting comment requests from a media outlet based in America. I think that's his thing. Hmm. Listen, another aspect of, of your job as a breaking news journalist, which is obviously very different to the type of journalism that, you know, I do as a broadcast journalist, is that, um, you know, on the one hand, you're obviously under pressure to get the scoop, you know, to be the first to, to publish. But then during a war, you must be very conscious that just one one bad call, right? One bit of false reporting, one source that wasn't properly checked, and you could potentially have a major incident on your hands. How do you balance that, you know, that pressure to get the scoop, but also that responsibility? Um, yeah, it's very, it's very hard and it's very overwhelming. And I think we all remember the fiasco with the AP. I'm, I'm just thinking that's the most recent example I can think of when they reported on the missile that had landed in Poland and citing officials as saying that it was Russian. And then that turned out um, not to be true. And I know there was that big fiasco. Um, usually we will not run things. If it feels thin, we will not run it. We will try and check it with somebody else. We look into who we're writing about, who we're citing. And I'm usually also, so much of what I'm writing is basically summarizing these reports that are in independent Russian media. So quite a lot of the time, the subjects in these stories have already been vetted. There's some background information about them out there. But there are definitely times when you will see sources being cited and you think, oh, you know, that seems kind of questionable. There was another Wagner fighter who had fled. Actually, it was before the one who fled, but there was another Wagner fighter who was giving all kinds of interviews from abroad in Europe. And I know that that turned out that he he had actually committed quite a lot of war crimes. And then he was talking about how the group had committed war crimes. And that's one of those other areas that comes into focus, particularly during wartime, is that do you want to give a platform to unsavory people who may have committed crimes? Like, do they get a platform too? It is really overwhelming. Um, and it's particularly hard being so far away from where this is all happening. You know, when I worked out there before, I had worked in eastern Ukraine on the front line and I was able to actually speak to people face to face. And now it's all, you know, all over the computer and I'm so far away and so far removed. It's not an easy task for sure. That's why so much of it is me just translating what I'm seeing with these independent Russian outlets, because I'm not there. You sound almost regretful that you're not there. I Yes, I am. <laughs> I would like to be there, um, but I have responsibilities here that would keep me from that. So, mm. But do you think that your experience of having reported. When, when when were you on the front in eastern Ukraine, by the way? What? Would have been in 2015. Do you think that you sort of carry that with you in a way that's informing the work that you are doing now from a distance? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, to be honest, I still feel quite a bit of guilt over that time because when you interview all these people who, you know, I remember interviewing an elderly woman 
who had survived the Holocaust. And then her home was bombed again in the Donbass. And she was so stoic and she kept telling me, I'm not going to cry for these TV cameras because there was a there was a TV station that was trying to film her nearby. And she just looked at me and she kept saying, I'm not going to cry for them. I know they want me to cry. I will not cry. Um, and then after they left, she broke down and started crying and her whole house was destroyed. Her family was gone. She didn't have clothes. She was in a nightgown. And it was really soul crushing to watch that. And then when you leave, you feel guilty because you can't, there's nothing you can do to help that person. Um, so I definitely carry a lot of that with me. And especially after seeing the full scale invasion start last year, I mean, it felt, it was like a gut punch. Like I know I'm not trying to minimize what Ukrainians out there are going through. I know what I, you know, I say it's a gut punch for me and I'm thousands of miles away and I'm safe, but I definitely experienced quite a lot of guilt that all of these people that I had met out there before, it's happening to them now and it's happening, you know, it's a hundred times worse now. So it's, it's, it's emotional for me. It's hard. Alison, Alison Quint, thank you so much for joining me and for giving me all those insights uh, into, into your work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And for more of Alison Quinn's reporting, do check out her byline at The Daily Beast. The variety of articles there is really quite staggering. Also, don't forget that if you have comments, questions or ideas for future interviews or topics for us here at Inside Europe, then you can get in touch. Uh, the email address is insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Traffic in the Czech capital Prague has been slightly worse than usual in recent weeks due to protests by campaigners demanding a blanket speed limit of 30 kilometres per hour throughout the city. The protests started small but have grown each week and have put the issue front and centre for politicians and the media and led to a necessary but sometimes ill-tempered debate. From Prague, Rob Cameron has more. The tenth in a series of protests by a group calling itself Last Generation. Activists walking down the capital's congested main roads at the height of rush hour. What they want is a sea change in Prague's urban transport policy, a blanket speed limit of 30 kilometers an hour across the city. This, they claim, will reduce death and injuries for cyclists and pedestrians, lower emissions and make the city more livable by encouraging more people to take public transport, cycle or walk. Their website lists capitals where 30 is already the norm. Paris, London, Madrid, Brussels. The idea has some supporters, but also many opponents, unsurprisingly in a city of car owners. Prague has 1.2 million inhabitants and 1.2 million vehicles. 
Yeah, you see it's 30 here, the 30 limit. I see, yeah. And uh, all these retarder, is it called retarder? Yes, retarders, yeah. Retarders that Peter Matsinka was the long-time spokesman for former president Václav Klaus and now heads a non-parliamentary political party called Motorists. He took me for a spin in his car. It's a blockade of transport in Prague during the rush hours. That's the crazy thing. De making uh, huge damages to the society, to thousands of people who, who have to drive. And they just slowly walk uh, on, the, on the main key roads or uh, highways and magistrala, you know that. To make a political point. To make a political point, but it's repeating. You know, it's 10th attempt to make it. It takes hours and hours and thousands and thousands of hours of people, of time of people who, who have to wait in those traffic jams caused by these uh, extremists. And that's a problem because they lost the elections, so the people refused that in elections. And now they want to, they want to bring their program like violating and blackmailing the society and blackmailing the, the public by, by doing such a extremist and almost terrorist terrorist acts. So that's, that's, that's my point and that's my position on that. Peter Matsinka stresses that green and far-left parties won a tiny number of seats in the elections for the overall city government of Prague. And that's true. But deciding speed limits in residential side streets rather than main thoroughfares is a decision for the city's district councils, like here in my own busy neighbourhood of Zhishkov in Prague's third district. Prague 3 is run by a coalition which includes the Green Party, which is in favour of 30 everywhere there are people. I went for a stroll with Assembly member Maciej Jalodek, who specialises in urban planning and transport policy. He supports the 30 for Prague protests, even if their radicalism is a shock for normally sedate Czech local politics. It goes too slowly for me. Uh, I have to admit that uh, I would like to make it quicker. And who am I to criticize the people who want to make it quicker and who are not campaigning for an election, but they are just a citizen of the city and they want to have a more livable city for them and for every other human being here. So for me, this kind of protest is actually maybe radical for Prague, but I would say it's adequate because it just makes this congestion, which is already there, a little bit longer, okay, but every protest march does that. In fact, one district has already introduced a blanket 30 kilometers an hour limit, and elsewhere it's slowly spreading street by street. Another matter is enforcement, although those who support it say once a critical mass of drivers slow down to 30, the traffic eventually slows for everyone. Ultimately, the vision is of a Prague of fewer cars, more bikes, more trees and total fluidity for the city's excellent public transport system. That's the vision. It still feels some way off. For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Prague. We firmly discourage speeding here on Inside Europe, unless, of course, you are metaphorically speeding to subscribe to our podcast or bonus points. Give it that five-star rating that will help other people to find us.
<laughs> this is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour... In nature, there is no need to spread your genes. It will it will happen. It is natural to have a big family. There's nothing like a conquest in, in it. It's just something so natural. It hasn't anything to do with winning a race or whatever. Sperm scandal in the Netherlands. Outrage over the man who fathered more than 550 children. Parched Earth, a two-part look at the consequences of drought in southern Europe. And who says there's no such thing as a free ride? Luxembourg celebrates three years of free public transport. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. We begin this half hour with a story as salacious as it is potentially serious. In the Netherlands, a Dutch court is currently hearing a case aimed at stopping an overly zealous sperm donor from donating. The man, a 41-year-old musician from The Hague, is believed to have fathered over 550 children in the Netherlands and around the world. Mothers attending the trial accused the donor of playing God and said that they feared that his behaviour could cause psychological harm to their offspring in a case that is raising wider issues about the accountability of the fertility industry itself. Our correspondent Stefan Boss has been following the story. Basically, we are talking about 41-year-old Jonathan Jacob Meijer. In the Netherlands, usually, they don't identify a suspect completely, but it doesn't make any sense because he's also very active on social media. Now, he appears to me personally like a, a kind of Tarzan with long blonde hair in clips on social media, at least. And I think he took the biblical be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth quite Literally, an investigation showed the man donated sperm to 11 Dutch clinics and several others abroad. And he also sought contact with prospective parents via online platforms and social media. However, I know that, for instance, here in the Netherlands, a donor may use his sperm to father a maximum of 25 children with a maximum of 12 mothers, but he is believed to have many, many more children here and reportedly in several other nations, including Germany, Australia, Britain, Denmark, Italy, Spain, Kenya and Tanzania. And that is what we know so far. 
Now, the musician, uh, that's what he is, who travels the world, clearly views it as his uh, God-given right to multiply. He says he also made that clear in discussions with atheists and those believing in evolution. So, for example, if I say I love to have a big family with uh, many kids, they will come up with uh, saying like, oh, you just want to spread your genes and to be like superior to others that are not spreading their genes. This is just stupid to me because in nature there is no need to spread your genes. It will, it will happen. It is natural to have a big family. There's nothing like a conquest in, in it. It's just something so natural. It hasn't anything to do with fighting somebody else or being better than somebody else or winning a race or whatever. Stefan, not something to brag about, he says. And yet, this is a man who makes no effort to hide his pride in his own fecundity, for which, I believe, he has a rather unusual explanation. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, uh, well, can I say, athletically built man uh, suggests that ahead of his appointments with sperm clinics in the Netherlands and elsewhere, he has... Uh, shall we say, a perhaps somewhat unusual breakfast. Am I really consuming 150 raw eggs every month? Yes, indeed, I do. My breakfast consists of five raw eggs. Fresh eggs, organic eggs, give you this boost that you need in the morning, that you like in the morning. And Kate, I actually saw him steering the eggs with what he said was raw milk, before drinking it. I don't, I'm not even sure I know how to respond to that, to be honest. I mean, the whole business is just completely surreal. But we mustn't forget that for the families that are involved, this is actually a really serious and deeply distressing case. Can you tell me more about the court case that is now ongoing in The Hague? Who's brought it and what do they want? Yes, the trial that is now ongoing in the Dutch city of The Hague has been launched by the Netherlands Donor Kind Stichting or Donor Child Foundation and a mother. They want to stop him. Among those demanding this is a young mother, Joyce Swart. She says she became a victim of his eagerness to multiply. She had two children of him. At one point, I have to tell my kids that they have hundreds of half-brothers and sisters and that they can and will meet them everywhere. And I must say to them, they must realize their whole life that they have so many siblings and that they may fall in love with a brother or sister. For a mother, that's very sour. So I hope this lawsuit will ensure something is done so he stops donating and that it will make politicians finally do something about it. That would also be very important for the future. I mean, this case is obviously extreme, but uh, Stefan, when I read about it, I had this nagging feeling of deja vu. This has happened before, hasn't it? Yes, indeed, Kate. Uh, we have seen several cases over the past years, including uh, fertility doctors who were involved in them. The Donor Child Foundation says it has identified at least 10 doctors who illegally used their own sperm to create 
children in the Netherlands. Among the high-profile recent cases, I recall that of Jan Karbaat, who fathered some 90 children at last count, most of them through fertility clinics, and Jan Wilschut, who fathered nearly 50 children. Now, they have clearly shown that the norms of a maximum of uh, 25 children weren't always adhered to. So I think this case may set a precedent and further encourage a debate about sperm donations and artificial insemination across the world. Well, quite, and hopefully a much overdue overhaul of an obviously vulnerable system before more people get hurt. Indeed. Stefan Boss, thank you so much for coming on the show once again to talk us through this very unusual story. You're welcome, Kate. Stefan Boss there. And the verdict in that case is expected on April 28th. It is indeed still only April, and yet already we need to talk about drought. Southern Europe, France, Spain, Italy and Portugal, is grappling with critically low water levels even before the heat of summer sets in. In the north of Italy, the lack of rain has been compounded by a lack of snow and resultant meltwater in the Alps. The results are extremely low water levels in the Piedmont and Lombardy regions. In some parts, even the drinking water supply is at risk, as Angelo van Schaik reports. It's 8 o'clock in the morning in Cuneo, and a water truck is being filled up at the city's fire department. It takes about 15 minutes to fill it with 8,000 litres. Andrea is responsible for the job and taking this precious commodity to places where it's needed. Camoglieres is one of 10 municipalities in this province of northwestern Italy that's without water. Mainly small villages in the mountains on the border between Italy and France. The provincial water company Agda drives into the mountains every day to refill the reservoirs in these villages. It's a 45-minute drive. The area is facing a critical situation, says Fabio Monaco. <laughs> He's responsible for the planning and maintenance of the drinking water supply system here. The situation is very serious. Many villages have been affected by the water crisis. Many water sources in the area have completely or partially dried up. So we now have to supply water to some of these villages, which is not normal. The mountains used to provide the water of the plain. Now the plain must provide the mountains with water. The countryside we drive through is mainly flat, with vineyards and grain fields. A bit further in the distance are the so-called Cunian Alps. Although some of its peaks are over 3,000 meters high, there's very little snow. Too little, says Andrea. This is not normal. At the end of March, beginning of April, there should be three or four times as much snow at 2,000 or 2,500 meters. There are places at 3,000 metres where there isn't even 30 centimetres of snow. That's the heart of the problem. It doesn't snow in winter, so there's no melting water in spring, and it doesn't rain in spring or summer. And this has been going on for more than two years now. There's a very real risk that there will be no water coming out of taps here this summer, says Fabio Monaco of the Acta Water Supply Company. 
Il rischio è concreto. Addirittura in In fact, this is already the case in some villages. The springs have died up to such an extent that if we didn't go into the mountains with water tanks, those villages would be without water. And if the rain doesn't come, it's inevitable that more and more villages will depend on water trucks. Restrictions on the use of water have already been in place in most of this area's municipalities since last summer. Tap water may only be used for drinking, showering and cooking. Washing your car or filling up your swimming pool is prohibited. Gino is preparing his hotel restaurant in De Monte, just outside Cuneo, for the summer season. He also has a swimming pool, but it's empty. Last summer, the mayor banned the use of tap water to fill swimming pools, so mine was closed. I lost a lot of money because tourists decided not to come to my hotel, and I'm worried it'll be the same this summer. After a 45-minute drive on narrow mountain roads, we reach Camolieres, a handful of houses attached to a mountain ridge. Andrea attaches the water hose to a pump to fill up the water reservoir. In the meantime, I walk around the tiny village, where I run into Daniele. Buongiorno. Lei abita qua? Sì. Io sono venuto con... There's no water in the village, though there's no need to ration it yet because there are only a few people living here. But when people come here to their second homes over summer, that could be the case. There's a small well in the village, but it's almost completely dried up because it's hardly rained for two years. Over the past few years, rain and snow have almost completely disappeared from this part of Italy. So how much rain would you need to return to water levels to what they were before this crisis? Fabio Monaco of the water supply company Agda. According to this region's environment department, 55 days of continuous rain are needed to bring the groundwater back to the same level as before the crisis. That means rain every day for two months in a row. That's the best way of explaining how serious the situation is. Andrea has finished filling up the water reservoir in Camolieres, but there are many other villages to visit. Rivers are running dry and agriculture, the supply of hydroelectricity and tourism are at risk. The Italian government is investing almost 8 billion euros to fight the drought. Hopefully there will be enough to avoid water taps from running dry for millions of Italians. Angelo von Schaik, DW, Cuneo. Italy. The drought in southern Europe also has concerning implications for the many industries dependent upon the water supply. In Spain, winemakers are particularly concerned since the grapes needed to make wines like the iconic Rioja are vulnerable to dry conditions and increased temperatures. Several of the most famous wineries are now beginning to experiment with different grape varieties and are turning to history in the search for older, hardier grapes that have fallen out of use. This is a research project that our reporter Ashish Sharma was very excited to be following up on. Hola. Hola. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hola. 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 Vamos. Sí. 
Ruben Jimenez is the director of viticulture at the Luis Cañas Bodega, one of the most famous in the Spanish wine-growing region of La Rioja. He takes me for a short tour around the vast vineyards. With some 350 hectares, Luis Cañas is an average-sized winery but produces around 2 million bottles annually. Sampling a wine, Jimenez is a pioneer here in Spain. He's developed variations from Tempranillo, the grape variety which is the backbone of Spanish wines. The impact climate crisis is having on grapes in Spain is the main spur behind his research. We thought about grapes that 120 or 150 years ago never really matured properly. They had a low grade of alcohol or were too acidic, and so viticulturalists abandoned them. But because of climate change, we're now dealing with more issues. It's the alcohol level, or the early ripening of grapes, or there's too little acidity, or the pH level is too high. So grape varieties which in the past didn't mature or remained green are today very interesting for us. We're going to plant a small batch of them, we're going to study them, we're going to work them and see what they're capable of producing today. The area belongs to the uh, regional government. Right. So Not far away from the bodega, the Institute of Grapevine and Wine Sciences is providing the technology and expert information for the likes of Ruben to utilize when it comes to experimenting with different grapes. My name is Jose Miguel Martinez Zapater and, and I'm currently the director, the scientific director of the Institute. What is the work that your institute is doing at the moment with regards to the impacts of climate change in relationship to the grapes that you already have? Climate crisis and sustainability are the, the key words of most of the projects that we develop in the, in the institute. The way to produce the grapes, the, the way to cultivate them, the, the way to water them, the water they need, their uh, nutrient requirements, the, the way uh, in which they interact with uh, pathogens and, and with pests and that is something that is changing already because of the climate change because new pests are, are appearing and approaching the Iberian Peninsula and so uh, our grapes could be under risk in the, in the next decades. The way they interact with the environment, specifically with the new conditions of uh, lack of water and higher temperature than, than usual, and how that affect the, affects their development, and how that affects also the, the quality of the grape juice and therefore the quality of the wine. According to figures from the Spanish Observatory of Wine Markets, wine generated over 3 billion euros in export sales for Spain in 2022, the highest figure ever. Gracias. The Spanish Wine Federation represents over 76% of companies involved in the industry. Its managing director, José Luis Benítez, told me that one of their main roles these days is to help bodegas deal with climate impact, including raising revenues to deal with climate adaptation. Climate change is one of the biggest challenges of the Spanish wine sector nowadays. You have a clear example now with Catalonia in which you have for three years now, and this is the fourth, a really heavy draft and high temperatures. Also high temperatures during last summer in Spain that were extraordinarily, extraordinarily high. 
and affected vineyards all over Spain. When you have a problem, you, I think that you must be aware of your problem and then you must find solutions. And we think that we have solutions. We only have to implement that. Así que eres un afortunado en probar este vino, que no hay mucho. Back at Luis Cañas and the day-to-day -day management of the vineyards, which Olaya Fernández has been doing for over 20 years, is now becoming more challenging. The weather has changed a lot. For example, the rainy season used to be well-defined, which is no longer the case. Before, we used to have winters with gradual rain over a period of time. Now, you just get torrential rain that takes off the topsoil. Today, we have to be far more vigilant about what the weather can bring and react quickly to whatever happens. Oops. This one. This is a varietal, very that is becoming The Luis Cañas Bodega, along with others, is producing small quantities of wine made from variations or from older grapes no longer used. These experimental wines are not for mass production, but the fact that time and money is being invested into these projects does suggest that Spain's wine industry has accepted that climate impact will affect the way wine is produced in the future. Ashi Sharma, DW Logroño. So we have, <laughs> and of course we have the cabas. And oh, the cabas, yeah, that's another thing we don't drink. For more environmental stories, do check out DW's environmental podcasts, Living Planet and On the Green Fence. And a very big shout out here to the On the Green Fence team, who we are delighted to be able to announce are to be awarded a silver medal at this year's New York Festival's Radio Awards. Congratulations to all involved. You can subscribe to those podcasts and indeed to Inside Europe via all the usual platforms. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Finally, this half hour, a topic very close to my own heart, particularly in a week of train strikes here in Germany. Public transport. Three years ago, Luxembourg became the first country in the world to make all public transport free. The decision was hailed as part of a plan to encourage motorists in Europe's wealthiest nation out of their cars. But critics have accused the government of greenwashing, saying that there is little evidence of less vehicle use. My colleague Nick Martin has more on how the money-saving initiative has gone down with commuters and captured the world's attention. A train pulls into Garda Luxembourg during the morning rush hour and dozens of commuters alight before pouring onto buses or the country's new tram system, which opened just five years ago. The single tram line can take them into the city centre, to where many international banks have offices, or to the Kirchberg district, home to many EU institutions. 
What's different about this scene to any other European city is that there are no ticket barriers. No money changes hands between travellers and the transport companies. Luxembourg did away with all that in February 2020. Free public transport, it was argued, would reduce congestion in the tiny capital, Luxembourg City, which is home to 110,000 people, but overwhelmed by up to 400,000 more commuters each day. Marcus Hesse, a professor of urban studies at the University of Luxembourg, said the idea to abolish fares came from politicians, not city planners. This was a very secretive decision made when the last government's coalition was just elected. They were thinking about what to offer. There were two pieces of special offers to the public that nobody had on the screen before the elections. One was the legalization of cannabis and the other was free public transit. Many have argued that Europe's wealthiest country didn't need to cut ticket prices to zero. Hesse said daily commuters holding monthly or annual tickets only paid knockdown rates anyway. Before the change, a single ticket cost only two euros, 50 to 300 percent less than a journey on, say, the London Underground. But Deputy Prime Minister Francois Bausch, a member of the environmentally friendly Greens Party, insisted the country needed a two-pronged approach to tackle worsening congestion. The first one was to push the discussion so that people would question their mobility behavior and then discover also which alternatives exist already. And the second is that because it's now for free, it's very easy to use spontaneously. And that brought us also new clients to the public transport. And you can see it best on the tram system. We have an increase of the passengers from 16,000 to 100,000 per day. And the first part of the network is not even finished. Even so, Luxembourg continues to build new multi-storey car parks to house the huge number of Porsches, Mercedes, Teslas and Audis driven by wealthy bank employees and EU civil servants into the city each day. Hesse thinks instead of offering free public transport, more investment is needed in the country's rail, bus and tram network, as well as greener alternatives. The main problems were actually uh, reliability of service and that has only slightly improved. The big problem is still that there is little inclination to limit the freedom of getting around with a car. Even though there was a debate about giving more space to cyclists and pedestrians, that seems to be very difficult to get accepted. That's a real problem also if one wants to make an assessment about how sustainable is the whole system's performance. Adding to the congestion is the cheaper price of fuel in Luxembourg, about 20 cents or some 13% less than German gas station prices. Hundreds of thousands of people cross the border each year to take advantage of the discount. A new CO2 tax on fuel has narrowed the difference in price recently and is due for a further hike. After decades of prioritising cars, Luxembourg has spent billions renewing its railway system over the past 10 years and now plans to expand its tram network from the current 12 to 60 kilometres. Deputy Prime Minister Bausch says it also has plans to encourage more cross-border workers out of their vehicles. Because we are, have a, a lot of commuters coming from France, from Germany and from Belgium to Luxembourg, we build up new park-and-ride facilities at the border and even abroad in France. 
for example. And all these park and ride facilities are, are located really close to a, a bus station or a train station or an exchange platform for public transport. So the most important tool that you have to implement is the quality of public transport in general, and then how can you combine it with uh, other modes of transport? Free fares have been widely welcomed by the public. These commuters were very happy to travel for nothing. This allows all cross-border residents, those from Belgium, Germany and France, to travel easily. And in addition, it is a good form of freedom, which we don't have in France. There are fewer controllers, there is less hassle. This is a good initiative. It strengthens the public sector. Transport is a fundamental right for residents. If you have the right to work, you should also have the right to get to work without too many costs. There is a lot of investment being made to improve the trains and buses, to extend a new tram network. But the culture of the car is still very present, and it's still quite complicated to attract people from the car to public transport. It's difficult to measure how successful the offer has been, not least because a month after it was introduced, Luxembourg and the rest of the world went into COVID lockdown. Since then, an increase in working from home has reduced vehicle journeys. But free public transport has been a great awareness campaign for brand Luxembourg and is a welcome bonus to the roughly 1.1 million tourists who visit the Grand Duchy every year. Nick Martin, DW, Luxembourg. If you want to find out more about European public transport, by the way, then you are in luck. We actually did a half-hour special on this very topic not so long ago, so we will be linking to that in the show notes. If you have any feedback for us, if you have questions about the show or ideas for future topics that you'd like to hear us cover, then please do get in touch. Our email address is insideeurope at dw.com and we do really enjoy getting your mails so please do keep them coming. In the meantime, this programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock and sound engineer Michael Springer. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. Mm-hmm.